Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nasty, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring fantasy play games as Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dane. I'm Dan. And I'm Ben. And today, we want to share some tips with our listeners about how to navigate Arkham more confidently in a multiplayer setting. Yeah, we, uh, so we know that a lot of people in the community tend to play mostly solo or maybe, you know, two-handed or maybe play with one other person, uh, which is cool. That's fun too. But, um, we're big fans of sort of group Arkham play with three or even four players, so what we wanted to do is, uh, you know, part of the fun of a, of a co-op game is you're working together with your friends. You can kind of, you know, each person can kind of take on uh, responsibilities and try to find a way to contribute to the success of the group by doing different things. So we want to sort of talk about things from that perspective, because we know that, you know, that this game can be kind of hard for newer players, even on even on like standard difficulty or on hard difficulty, which is what, you, what we usually play on. Um, so yeah, we just want to break down what your group needs to be able to do and how to set up your individual deck so that you can do those things and sort of help your group succeed. Yeah. Well, why don't we kind of go into how we want to think about roles for each player in the group? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, so, so broadly speaking, there's two primary things that you need to be able to do to win most scenarios in Arkham Horror, right? You need to get clues and you need to deal with enemies. There's lots of other stuff that you have to do too. Sometimes you have to like parley with uh, with NPCs. Sometimes you have to pass some kind of special test. Sometimes you have to do you have always have to deal with treacheries. But by and large, those are the two biggest things that you need to kind of tailor your deck to be able to handle, right? So let's talk about if you're going to be the person in your group who is primarily focused on getting clues. Uh, you're probably playing a seeker, but there's other non-seeker investigators and classes that you can play also to do this clue gathering yeah yeah but how should you sort of how should you approach playing the game and what should you try to do so the main thing that distinguishes uh gathering clues is that you really have to you really get to be proactive because you kind of dictate the pace of the game the the game basically ends most of the time when you've collected a certain number of clues and you're able to advance to the last act, right? I mean, not every scenario is like that. Sometimes you have to defeat a boss. Sometimes you have to do some kind of special thing. But, you know, I don't know, what, 70, 80% of scenarios, do you guys think? I mean, in general, clues either are directly the objective or they help you complete the objective faster or more efficiently. Yeah, even if even if there's like a, a big boss you have to fight, usually there's a way to spend clues to damage it or to manage right. it or something exactly. like that. Exactly. They're so almost you... never irrelevant. I think the whole game is designed around like if you can get clues, you can probably win. Like, even yeah, with, even with enemies and stuff. So, so this is very much if, if you're getting clues, your mission is to you know get from the starting point of the game to the point where you have all the clues, and the faster you do that, the faster you win. It's also you know unlike um you know in in other games like in in, in Magic, you're just trying to reduce somebody's life total to zero. In Netrunner, you're trying to get seven victory points. In this game. You can you can win or you can win more. You can get all the all the victory points off locations. You can uh, succeed more on things like midnight masks, where there's extra cultists to try to find. So the more efficiently you can gather clues, the faster you'll win, and the the higher chance you'll have to get these kind of extra objectives. Yeah, exactly. 
So one of the, I mean, I, I think one of the kind of first things that we started trying to, to tell people in the, this kind of, you know, kind of MUR mindset, you know, a couple of years ago was that if you, if you're playing a seeker or a person that's trying to get clues, you almost should try to play kind of boring in the sense that you should try to spend almost all of your actions investigating. Um, like any actions that you're spending. If you want maximum efficiency, right? That's what we're looking at. Oh yeah. I, I mean, all of this is sort of like, if you're really trying to optimize as much as possible and trying to really, really wreck everything. I mean, obviously, you know, you can do whatever you want, but any action that you spend, you know, drawing cards or gaining money or playing assets or moving around is kind of an action that you're not spending moving the game forward. Right. And sometimes you have to do that other stuff, obviously. And sometimes it's worth it, but it's something to be aware of that you're kind of baseline. If you're, if you're asking yourself, what should I do this turn? Almost always the answer should be investigate a place that has clues on it, right? You say boring, I say steady. It's very steady (laughs) progress towards something. And while that might not be as flashy as getting three clues through some strange event and then getting a bunch of money because of a different event, the fact of the matter is is that as long as you're getting clues in as as many times as possible, then you're going to be doing pretty well, hopefully. Yeah, and, and and also we should say, I mean, just because you're spending most of your actions investigating doesn't mean that you don't have interesting decisions to make and interesting things to do. There's always actionless stuff that's going on. You're committing skills. You can definitely make very interesting secret decks. Um, but I think what, what we're kind of urging is because, you know, you're basically the one that is uh, most responsible for propelling your group towards, you know, the winning, the, the finish line, you should be aware of that and, and, and really try to push progress as much as you can. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and also along that, that those same lines, so you want to spend as many of your actions as possible investigating. That means that if you have obstacles in your way, like if there's an enemy in your threat area, or if there's an enemy on the location that you need to go to to get clues next, or if you have a treachery in your threat area or something like that, um, if there is other people in your group who are not as capable of getting clues as you are, it's totally reasonable to ask them if they can deal with those threats for you so that you can focus on moving the entire group towards the finish line, right? Exactly, yeah. And sometimes that means your guardian or whoever's managing your threats would need to kind of sacrifice maybe some of their setup, or at the very worst, um, you know, one of their own weaknesses to get rid of yours or to get rid of an enemy that's in play in front of you or something like that. That should be kind of totally reasonable in the more grand scope of the game, because you will be the one, like Dan said, that will be... progressing everything propelling everybody towards the ultimate victory yeah yeah so is it the clue gatherer's job to make sure they don't uh wander off by themselves uh after clues because i i know sometimes you get you get focused on oh i gotta go get those clues gotta go get these clues and you might your guardian's like fighting like five enemies and you may maybe wander a few locations away uh is that your problem or is that <laughs> like is if the you, you, you see a breadcrumb on the forest floor and you stop to eat it and then you see another breadcrumb on the forest floor a little <laughs> yeah. bit further away that's how clues are in this game or, or an m&m or something uh i mean like that should be a discussion with your group right like it's your job to get the clues as fast as possible it's uh other, the job of other people in your group to keep you safe and to deal with enemies so you that's a discussion based on what everyone is capable of doing in, in the current turn and what risks you think are are, into, are involved, right? Yeah. But but just in general, sort of thinking about things this way of kind of splitting up responsibilities and specializing is something that if you're used to playing with like one or two players, you might be in a mode where you're used to being very self-sufficient and you just might not be used to it. 
So it's, it, it's, and you certainly don't have to play that way. You could just play four completely self-sufficient solo decks in a four player game, but you can really increase your efficiency if you're willing to kind of specialize individual decks. Kind of sacrificing your autonomy or ability to, to mitigate threats yourself in regards to being a clue gatherer for ultimate power <laughs> of, of scooping clues. Ultimate up. power. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's like a team game. Yeah. I understand like sports ball. There's people that are like specialized at like kicking the ball in a certain direction. <laughs> and some guys are specialized at like throwing the ball really hard. And some guys are specialized in like standing in the way of other people. Or, 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 <laughs> or to pick, you know, to pick another, uh, to pick another example, that's a little bit closer to uh, this, you know, nerdy card game. You know, if you've played like an MMO where you do dungeons or something, or uh, Ben, you used to play Overwatch, say something about Overwatch and how you need like a, uh, you need different types of Overwatch people on your Overwatch right. team, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure Overwatch changed is very different from when I played it, but you always wanted to have like, two like tanky people uh, two like support people which were like the healers and like two dps was like the ideal ratio you know it depended on which as with everything it depended on which characters you picked based on like what their specialties were or whatever yeah yeah so I, was not, I was not actually good at overwatch but i did play it <laughs> in this game you could kind of like draw a comparison to uh like an offense and a defense in that your offense are your clue gatherers which is weird to think about because the reason why you could liken that to an offense is because it's proactive because the nature of of getting clues is is that you're you're pushing forward and the defense comes in the form of your your threat management um which is the people who will keep the enemies away yeah it's it's almost it's almost counterintuitive it's almost like the opposite of what you'd think but that is kind of i think the correct way to think about it um so so staying on this sort of clue gatherer role for, for a little while longer um when you're building a deck to try to do this you really want to think about efficient clue gathering over the entire course of the scenario. You know, it's not necessarily a race to see, can you get, you know, four clues in a single turn very fast or five clues. It's more about, can you be the, can you as quickly as possible get, you know, 30 clues or however many or 40 clues, whatever, like the sort of total number that's going to be on all the locations or as many of those as possible. Right. So uh, you definitely want to boost your sort of investigative skill, which is usually intellect or maybe it's will or agility or something high enough so that you're almost always going to succeed on normal tests, right? I mean, I think most most locations in most scenarios are either like a, you know, two shroud location with like two times number of player clues or maybe like a four shroud location with one times number of player clues. It's usually like somewhere in that vicinity, right? right. So you know, ideally you get your kind of investigative stat up to a six or something like that, or even a seven. And then you're going to spend a lot of actions investigating things that let you get multiple clues in a certain, in a a single action are very good, but you know, things like Intel report and drawn of the flame are very, very good in two player because you can kind of clean off an entire location and then just move on in higher player counts. There's so many clues that getting two in a single action instead of one it's like, that's good, but now you still have, you know, six more clues to get on this location. So uh, what you really want is either, so uh, Archaic Glyphs is very, very good. We, we're calling out a single card by name. Um, what is it? Archaic Glyphs Guiding Stones, the one that gets you extra clues for each two points you succeed by. Just because that's like an unlimited, you can get a million clues with that. But also deduction and especially level two deduction are very good, especially if you can recur them a lot of times and just keep playing them over and over again. Things like Intel Report and Drawn of the Flame. So Intel Report lets you spend a bunch of money to just automatically get clues without 
doing a test. Drawn to the Flame lets you draw an encounter card to, you know, get clues without a test. Those are very good, but they're maybe not quite as good in higher player counts as they are in two player, because instead of getting all of the clues off of a location, then you can move on. You play a Drawn to the Flame, you get two clues, but then there's still, you know, six on this location. You still have a lot of work to do. Yeah, you still need other ways to pick up those clues. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, if you can have enough of those or if you can recur them a lot, those can still be good. Also, the the mystic spells that let you get multiple clues, like Rite of Seeking and Clairvoyance, that let you test with your will. And if you succeed, you get two or three clues with the upgraded version. Those are very good as well, because you can maybe you can keep putting more charges on them and stuff, too. Yeah. And having ways to get to more of those could be also pretty viable, too. Like if you have John of the Flames and you need more ways to i guess to not get limited by the by the cards that you have in your deck having draw to be able to draw into things like sharp vision which is a survivor skill that gives you extra int symbols on it if you're just committing it to a basic test and then gives you an additional clue upon successful investigation of two or higher things like that yeah or or things that let you reliably um just pick up clues by activating them so like uh, lola Santiago or something it's also, it's important to factor in player count because that usually determines how many clues are on a location. It's usually a multiple of the number of players. So in a three-player game, Rite of Seeking and Clairvoyance, the upgraded versions, or Deduction Level 2, or Seeking Answers, everything that gets you three clues is very, very strong in a three-player game. Sort of like how Intel Reporter Drawn of the Flame or Level 0 Deduction are very strong in a two-player game. So that's something to think about as well. Yeah, I think I think three-player Arkham kind of inhabits an interesting spot right now in that there are some cards that are specifically very good in three-player that may not be as desirable in two- or four-player just because of the fact that it picks up a very specific amount of clues. Um, for example, like you were, you were drawing attention to Rite of Seeking, I believe it's level four or five, that picks up two additional clues upon successful investigation and it uses your will. So it picks up clues well when it's in a multiple of three which hey you're playing three player it's perfect for that yeah definitely (laughs) Um, same thing with pilfer right pilfer also picks up two additional clues at the cost of four money and a rogue event yeah so in in terms of uh, other cards you know we've been encouraging you know kind of specialization here you know i think it was pretty common in the early days of the game to throw in one copy of like i've got a plan or something which lets you it's like an event that lets you make a powerful attack if you have clues so you can help out a little bit with damage I mean, that's still fun. Like, that's not necessarily a bad thing to do, but I don't think you necessarily need to do that if you're in a group and if you're confident in the abilities of other people in your group to handle stuff like that. So maybe you don't need a, um, a I've got a plan or a, uh, you know, mind over matter to evade stuff. You might not actually need those. This is to say, <laughs> making, maybe, maybe making note of who's going to be your threat management uh, would be important because if you don't trust the Trish player who's saying that they're going to deal with all of the threats and contain no clue cards in their deck, you might be maybe a little put off by <laughs> by that and, <laughs> and consider including some of these cards. Yeah, definitely. T- take into account whether everyone else in the group is kind of uh, on board, I guess. <laughs> let's Let's just talk a little bit about sort of for each of these kind of roles that we're going to talk about. Let's just talk about what some of our favorite uh, investigators and decks are. So I I like playing Clue Gatherers a lot. Mostly I like playing Seekers because Seekers have a lot of really powerful fast cards and you can do a lot of nonsense and draw a lot of cards. (laughs) So I think the kind of highest tier of them that I like playing are like Mandy, Daisy, and Amanda. You know, Mandy and Daisy both have five intellect and strong abilities. 
Amanda only has twos, but she has kind of a, a very powerful, unique ability that can compensate for it. And I think if you're playing a seeker who has some way to draw cards and baseline five intellect or you know some other substitute for that, you're in really good shape because you can quickly find your cards, you can get a million clues without having to worry about passing investigate tests usually, and you can you can you know recur deduction two a million times. Uh, you, you've got a lot of options, so I, I definitely like to play those types of decks. It's not to say that all uh, clue gathering decks have to be seekers, though. Yeah, I really like uh, I kind of like the off class seekers a little bit. I don't know better, but uh, I enjoy them because they let you play with the whatever weird tools the class has, uh, and then also still have access to the fantastic seeker cards, so you can <laughs> get clues for quick. Uh, like I like I like Luke a lot. Uh, although he does give me, he constantly gives me a headache because uh, there's always some new <laughs> rules interaction that I don't know how to figure out the answer to, which would drive drives me insane. Maybe would drive uh, a regular uh, person wouldn't care at all. But um, <laughs> but I like Luke. Uh, he can get clues sufficiently. He does. He, he has his base int isn't as high, but he can use his willpower or his int. It's different ways you can build him. You can try to do event stuff, but you can be pretty efficient with him because you can like play events on side location stuff to scoop stuff up. So I like that. And I've been liking Trish and even Finn as uh, rogues, where they can have access to the secret pool, have high int, they, uh, and they have action compression that lets them do a little bit of something else. I'm not sure if you said it, Dan, but like being able to like focus on clues, but then have something else in your in your investigator skill set that kind of forces you to do something that's not clue related can be can be fun. Like with Daisy, it's like, oh, I have a tome I get to do every turn because I can't use that to get clues. Uh, yeah, we, we used to joke that, yeah, playing Daisy was the most fun seeker because you could investigate three times, then you still had an action to do something else as, <laughs> long, as long as it was using yeah. a book. Have you, uh, have you ever played a Guiding Stones deck, Ben? I don't know if I've ever seen you try that. Uh, I don't know if I have. If I have, it might have just been once. I don't know. You should give it a try. We We really cannot state enough how ridiculously bonkers Guiding Stones is for, like, four players. Might have done it, like, back when we had, like, Rex. When did Guiding Stones come out? Uh, it came on Carcosa, Carcosa, I think. Yeah, or no, I might, Forgotten Age. Forgotten really, Age. I don't know. Oh, that might have been after I stopped playing Rex. Forgotten Age, yeah. <laughs> I haven't played Rex in a long time. What, uh, what about you, Dan? So I don't necessarily have a favorite Seeker. It kind of changes all the time. But for right now, <laughs> I've been playing this min deck that's pretty fun. And I do, I've always loved Finn as, as a Seeker as well. As somebody who, get, who can pick up a lot of clues fast, I like him a lot. And he's also pretty self-sustainable. When I'm playing a Seeker, gener- like an actual Seeker, I do like playing Guiding Stones decks just because it's a ridiculous amount of power <laughs> to have on the game. And really, like when, when you can pick up so many clues in one action, it almost allows you to have more fun in a way because you can get to playing those other assets that you have and things like that. And with Finn, it's more because he's self-sustaining. Um, he can dodge enemies and keep himself safe in a way that a lot of other Seekers can't really do that reliably. And it doesn't take away from his gameplay, because he does have a free action to evade. You can easily evade something, benefit from, like, Lucky Cigarette Case, which draws you a card when you succeeded at something by two or more, and then continue on your clue path. And then later, your your threat manager can can mow down whoever you just dodged. You uh, used to be a big Ursula fan, Dane. You, have you played Ursula much recently, or have you kind of moved on? Not recently. Yeah, that's it. I don't know why. <laughs> she used to be well, my favorite, and now she's not. So there that's you go. that. You know, the life life moves on. The way of the seeker. 
and and we should also move on. So let's let's talk a little about the other kind of major different role um, that's important in this game, which I, I we sometimes call it sort of like threat management or you know fighter kind of like most mostly what you're doing is fighting enemies. Um, the defense, I think if, right? Yeah, like philosophically, this is the kind of reactive defensive role. So you know, just being able to beat enemies in most scenarios does not win the scenario for you, right? It's more your job is to keep the enemies at bay long enough to collect clues. Occasionally that changes. Occasionally there's a scenario where, you know, you have to hunt down and kill all of the somethings or whatever. Um, but even then, as we mentioned earlier, usually you still need clues, right? So your job, if you're playing this role, is to prevent threats from interfering with your teammates as they work to progress the game. So usually the number one thing that means is pulling enemies off of them. Um, you want to think of it as, you know, you're trying to like unblock people. You're trying to make it so that the people in your in your group that are able to get clues uh, are able to do that and they aren't prevented from doing that by having an enemy in their threat area or an enemy like standing at the location that they're trying to go to or even maybe like a treachery card in their threat area that is preventing them from doing stuff. That's less common, but it, it, it can happen. So the way that I usually think about it is if there's no enemies on the board or no kind of active enemies that actually pose a threat, then the board is kind of safe. You don't have to, you know, you're in like this kind of stable, you know, eye of the storm and everything is okay. But then during, you know, encounter phase, uh, during mythos phase, when you draw encounter cards, some number of enemies will usually come onto the board, right? Like some, some number of people in the group will draw enemies and now you have kind of threats to deal with. And what's difficult is one, you know, if your teammates are very spread out, it may be difficult for you to kind of handle enemies that they each have when they're in different parts of the board. So you have to pay attention to locations a lot and how players are distributed. Um, the other thing that makes this difficult is the threats appear kind of unpredictably in bursts sometimes, right? So maybe one round, maybe one person draws an enemy and it's easy. You just go and kill it or you pull it off of them. But then maybe the next round, maybe three people draw enemies. And that's like a lot to deal with. That's really difficult. So in contrast to getting clues, where the strategy is kind of slow and steady, like long-term efficiency, to get a, a bunch of clues over a long period of time, playing a kind of a fighter or like an enemy manager is much more about sort of like burst efficiency or being able to, in a particular turn, quickly react and handle a bunch of enemies so that the rest of the group can focus on getting clues. Yeah, exactly. And and that said, I think it, there's also kind of a viable strategy that has evolved over time in evading things and kind of like being able to strategically leave enemies in places that they might not affect the game or evading them with, with something like slip away that uh, when you use it, it's a, it's a rogue event that basically allows you to have them evaded for another turn. They don't ready on the next turn that they would normally. Things like that are are also good, but to have like a uh you know a happy bob ross board you want no enemies on it yeah i mean certainly you know evading can be good sometimes um usually ideally you want to kill stuff because then it goes away for multiple turns instead of just going away and then you have to deal with it again yeah. but if there's an enemy that doesn't have hunter and you can evade it on a location that you know you're not going back to that's usually pretty fine um certainly if you're playing forgotten age there's all those vengeance enemies if you're going to to manage all the threats you almost have to be able to evade stuff but yeah, usually we mean, you know, killing enemies, but it can be other things too. If there's three enemies that come out in one turn, maybe you're not able to actually kill all three of them. But if you can maybe kill one, evade another, and then engage the third one so that at least it hits you instead of the seeker, that's a pretty good turn. Like that's the best you can do maybe. I think early on, 
when the game was first coming out with like Zella and Dunwich, I think we thought Evasion was like a relatively weak uh, way to deal with enemies uh, in multiplayer. I think it's a bit stronger now, and I think it's just because they've made more reasons for enemies to be evaded rather than just straight up killed. Uh, usually like an ability on the enemy, or if it's not a hunter, maybe you just want to evade it and leave instead because it has five health or something. It's more efficient to put it in a corner or whatever. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely, it's now definitely a useful thing to have in your toolbox. I think you still don't necessarily want to have like Rita as your main enemy handler, right? <laughs> like you still want to be able to, there's a lot of enemies that you do want to be able to kill. Yeah. But evading evading is definitely a useful skill to have as well. In the same way that clue gatherers have to have kind of like the main objective of getting all the clues that you need to progress the act usually is the way that that goes. That's kind of the main objective. The side objective would be to collect victory points from locations. Uh, That way you can kind of have a more long-term win where you can upgrade your cards more efficiently. That also takes form in threat management in the form of enemies that have victory on them. And those are like the prime, one of the primary reasons anyway, to have somebody who can kill enemies efficiently, because some of them spawn with like four, five, six health, really hard to deal with high combat value. And it's maybe not good to rely on a single backstab, which would just do three damage once if you succeed the test with your agility and have somebody who can pump out damage with like a machete or a gun. So you can get that. And so this is the other reason why I really, you want to think of it as having this kind of stable, safe state where there's no harmful enemies on the board and you try to return to that. Because if you just evade a couple of enemies, if they're still there, next turn, if somebody draws another enemy, now you have more enemies to deal with, exactly. right? So, so this is why if you can keep the board clean as much as possible, when the board is in this kind of clean, safe state, you have maximal flexibility to respond to new threats that appear. Yeah. I think, I think what you should be asking yourself every time as the threat manager is, would Bob Ross be happy with this board? <laughs> and if the answer is no, then you're doing something wrong. I, you don't think Bob Ross would be like, oh, I'll put a happy little uh, fish person over here and a happy little snake <laughs> over on this okay. Maybe wonderful, wonderful little location, you know? Bob Ross as a rule does not draw, you know, hounds of Tindalos or whatever <laughs> on his landscapes. You know, he didn't so. have like a, a two-year period where he did that or something, like a blue phase? Not, not that we know of. Maybe those are like the lost episodes that are sealed in a vault somewhere <laughs> when he was, he was going through some rough shit. Yeah, I don't know. You want happy locations <laughs> with no enemies Ideally, no treacheries on them as the threat manager. Right. And and your, your kind of success criteria, like, you know you're doing a good job if the seekers and clue gatherers in your group basically just don't ever have to think about enemies. Like, that's really what you're trying to do. Exactly. And you can't always do it, but hopefully most of the time you can. Uh, and of course, you know, the other difference is, you know, with seekers, we were saying you should really try to spend almost all of your actions getting clues. With a, you know, if you're if you're a fighter or an enemy manager, there will be turns where you kind of have downtime, where there aren't any enemies on the board, or there's only one and it's easy to deal with. So you will occasionally have actions free to, you know, reload, heal yourself, rearm, play an asset. So you want to be able to make use of those times. So instead of this kind of like steady pace of just trying to get clues as fast as possible, you have turns where it's important that you kind of quickly murder a bunch of things very efficiently, and then you have other turns where you can kind of... Uh, you know, re- regenerate and kind of refocus afterwards. Exactly, yeah. 
And then, you know, most scenarios have some kind of boss enemy at the end that you are mostly responsible for killing. But honestly, uh, they're, they're usually not incredibly hard to beat. You know, maybe they've got like 10 health or something. And, you know, you hit it a couple of times. Maybe other people can help you kill it. I mean, th- that's definitely important, but it's usually less critical to think about than sort of keeping everyone else free to focus on progression. So when you're when you're building a deck as a kind of like a fighter or an enemy handler, one thing that's pretty universally needed, unless you're playing Nathaniel, is weapons, right? Like you, you pretty much always want, you know, there, there's a type of asset in the game that lets you do usually like two damage instead of one when you do it when you fight, right? And that's that's a pretty huge thing that's another reason why this why these uh this role kind of feels different from getting clues getting clues you can basically just you know immediately start investigating right off the bat and just get one clue at a time and it's pretty okay but for fighting you know punching without a weapon is usually not that good so you want to have enough weapons in your deck maybe like four or five or something to be able to find one pretty quickly you also because sort of you know burst efficiency is more important than steady progress so there was this term from i think from netrunner called action compression where the idea was that you would sort of want cards that let you kind of spend actions on one turn that are kind of inefficient in the moment but they let you do more stuff on a future turn you're kind of like banking power that you can use up later so Things like that are good. You almost kind of want to, I mean, borrowed time is like almost a boring example of this because it's like exact, that's exactly what it does. But a card like that is really very good if you're handling enemies because on turns where there's no enemies, you can kind of like invest an action into it. And then in a later turn where there's a bunch of enemies, you can use that action to be able to respond. Yeah. Things like Safeguard, for example, one of my favorite cards to have the privilege of using as a threat manager, just something that allows you to play for one action. And then anytime your ally, ideally your your clue gatherer, would move, you can exhaust it and then you just move with them. The level two version is wherever they go. The level zero version is just the first time they move, you move with them. So you can imagine the amount of actions that would save it just having to move to go find the enemy or move and then engage the enemy that's that's attached to your clue gatherer. When you could just do that whenever they spawn, you could just have it spawn on you if if the criteria are met. So like it's great. Even uh, even something like shortcut, which is just a fast event that moves you one space, is is very good in this role because you can hold on to it until the turn where you really need to deal with two enemies that are two locations apart that people just drew. Right. There's also so any card that lets you do extra damage in a relatively predictable way, like a beat cop, which you can just activate when you need to to do an extra damage vicious blow which you commit and it does extra damage on your attack those are really good because maybe a couple of really big enemies popped out you're trying to kill them this turn because if you just evade them they're still out maybe you'll draw another big enemy next turn it would be much better if you could just fully get rid of them this turn um that's what vicious blow is for right or even something like monster slayer or half of the cards in the the nathaniel cho pack do stuff like this (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is to say too that these cards are actually pretty important something like vicious blow if there's just one enemy that's coming out from the deck uh, that you can deal with without a vicious blow you kind of have to weigh if you have ammo that you're using whether or not you'd want to just punch it and not use any of your resources it's kind of like a balancing act sometimes where if something comes out and you kind of a relatively light turn as a threat manager just one enemy you can kill it with two actions or whatever that's fine and do that but not necessarily using a vicious blow on that enemy just to like have two other actions that you could draw cards or gain resources with because there are the very nature of it like dan was saying 
is that sometimes you'll get these turns where all four investigators just draw enemies or you'll advance the act and then people <laughs> will draw enemies. Then you don't have your vicious blow, you know? So like you kind of want to think about how you're using these things as resources because your B-cops only have a certain number of life. You're, you only have so many vicious blows at your disposal. Right, yeah. You want, you want to try to save those expendable resources for when you really need them, but also then you're going to have downtime or maybe you can heal your B-cop, maybe you can draw more cards, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, I think you guys are getting to the point where threat management, I mean, it probably applies to all, all cases, but really when you're playing, you have to scale, like, do I need these resources now or do I need them later? And with threat management, it's like uh, you need your actions for, you need your actions and your abilities for when the enemies are actually on the board, and then later you don't need them as much when there's when the board is in the safe state. So it's like the vicious blow is to compress your actions on important turns versus like just saving your actions so you can draw a card or, or something with your third action that would otherwise not be useful. Taking uh taking extra actions is also very good in these types of decks. Maybe maybe even better than it is in sort of clue gathering decks. I know um Dane Dane plays Tony decks sometimes that are kind of based around taking a bunch of actions. And that can be really powerful, right? Because if again, if you're in the scenario where suddenly everyone else in the group just drew a big significant monster and they're a couple of turns away, if you can take like six actions during your turn, that really increases the chance that you can actually deal with all those enemies. And you don't have to take six actions every turn because most turns, hopefully there aren't three enemies to deal with, but you want to have that power to be able to do that when you need it. So just one one last thing really quickly, talking about cards, there's a comparison that I think is kind of interesting to look at. If you look at the 45 automatic from the core set, which is just a weapon, it costs four, you get four bullets and it just uh, gives you plus one combat and one extra damage on a on a fight test right you get to use it four times it's kind of like the baseline right yeah and that's that's quite a good card like these days i think it sees a little bit less play just because there's a lot of other options but it's still quite good it's still very reasonable to put that in a fighter deck if you look at fingerprint kit which is a more recent card that came out i think in dreamlands it's roughly the same thing right it's i think three cost three charges on it uh or three supplies rather and you use one oh is it circle undone maybe you use it when you investigate, and if you succeed, you get an extra clue. So it's it's very analogous, it's very similar, but that's like kind of a worse card, right? Because it just costs a lot. If you actually add up the total cost of the action to play it and the money that it costs to play it, you know, it gets you extra clues, but it costs a lot of it costs an, a card and an action and a lot of money to do it, and it's only going to get you basically three extra clues over just investigating normally. So it's great, but you don't really need the action compression that it provides as a seeker. But the equivalent card, the 45 auto, is really good because it provides you with that action compression. Like, it's worth it to invest four bucks and a card and an action to put this down on the field and then know that in a future turn where you really need to kill something before it can attack somebody, you will be able to do, like, twice as much damage by using up the bullets on this gun. I can't imagine paying $4 for a gun and it exhausting itself. What gun would that be? (laughs) (laughs) That sounds silly. Who would who would do that? Uh, I mean, on the subject of uh, of cards, when w- w- let's briefly talk about what we each personally kind of like when we play decks like this. I know it, I think it's almost people must be getting sick of us talking about Mark by now because uh, we do it way too much. But uh, that's definitely my favorite fighter deck, just because the gold standard. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I like other guardians too. I uh, other guardians are quite fun, but. It just they just feel very slow and, and weak compared to Mark <laughs> after you've played Mark a couple of times because he he just draws so many cards. It's really ridiculous. Um and that's great because it lets you 
sort of focus on focus your deck around being able to kill things and protect people and you just get all the cards for free for mark's ability and he also fits really well into this sort of rhythm that we're describing where you have some turns where you need to move quickly and murder a lot of things and then other turns where you can take some downtime and recover so mark can just play healing cards and he can heal himself back up and then that just gives him more health that he can use to draw cards and uh it boosts his stats in the future yeah so i I, I really like Mark a lot. I mean, other people are fun too, but but that's definitely my number one. Yeah, and Mark, his his thing is, I guess for for those who don't know, Mark Harrigan has uh, an ability that whenever any card he has controls takes damage. When damage when damage is placed on a card he controls, he draws a card. So in that way, the first time each phase, so you can do it multiple times per turn, which is insane. Exactly. Yeah, and in that way, it really speaks to the action compression part because suddenly you don't have to use actions drawing cards those actions that you have when you've finished off the enemies you can actually just play the assets that you've drawn from taking damage from boosting your skills or doing whatever else it's great yeah and he and he has five combat too which is relatively unusual so he's just baseline he's usually able to hit most enemies without having to give up a lot of resources to do so right yeah I know, uh, I mean, Guardian-wise, uh, I always like Zoe. I, I think it's very clear I like her because of her, her backstory and theme, but she also is, is pretty good. Uh, she, doesn't have, she doesn't have the five combat of Mark, but her ability where whenever an enemy engages her, she gets a resource uh, is, is very powerful. Guardians, they have a lot more than they you know, did back when she came out in Dunwich uh, for resource generation, but they still have a lot of very expensive cards they want to play, so getting mm-hmm. a lot of money gives her more options for like getting maybe expensive events along with like expensive assets that she can get out there yeah plus her cross uh is like free action question damage if you choose instead of taking money if you have a cross down you basically convert that money immediately into damage the cross is so good yeah it is yeah uh, which is nice especially because uh we see lots of like three health enemies I don't, I don't know if we brought that up earlier but sometimes like being able to do the three damage uh consistently can be very helpful uh to clear the board off fast yeah or or play beat cop and the cross and do four damage in one action right. basically yeah yeah even better because there are there's often four health enemies as well but when you get a five health enemy you're just sad because you're like well have you that. have you tried playing zoe with the police whistle yet because that i think that might just be a huge huge thing for her oh right the whistle. police whistle seems like it's pretty 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 darn good for her uh, i haven't actually played a deck i played with somebody that has had it in their deck but i haven't actually played it myself I was about to ask, is the best Zoe experience Dreamlands? Uh, oh, because because of the swarms? Yes. <laughs> are getting a million money? Her high will is pretty good in Dreamlands and TCU, right? Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely very fun because you can get a, a... There's there's often campaigns where, like, campaigns will have a weird mechanic that, like, synergizes really well with an investigator. Like, Carcosa and Agnes, has, with, with the weird rule <laughs> that happens halfway through that campaign. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Is, is great you know so the same thing with zoe and dreamlands yeah so. yeah Myst- mystics at, at this point mystics like akachi and agnes can be pretty good enemy handlers yeah yeah they're yeah they're they have a very good breadth of cards where they can very easily lean into one or the other I mean, most of the classes kind of have that too but i, I think like depending on the investigator it's like oh this guy's a, this is a fighter even though they're a guardian they're, they have guardians have secret cards or including cards but when like three four player they're probably going to focus mostly on fighting as threat management yeah. What about uh Dane? Do you have uh some favorite sort of guardian, sort of fighter or enemy manager decks that you like to play? Yeah, I think my hands down favorite is Tony of all time, mostly because he has kind of like a little mini game sort of side objective with basically you start the game with Tony with 
this thing called bounty contracts, which allows you to put bounties on enemies. And whenever you kill an enemy with a bounty on them, you get a dollar. Pretty simple. And when you are dealing with enemies with bounties on them, you get an extra action in which to engage, fight, or evade. Mm. So like Dan was saying earlier, extra actions can be incredibly good. And for Tony, you, you can just get that by playing him. And you're supplemented by cool rogue cards. I was talking in jest about a card that exhausts itself as a gun. And one of my favorite guns actually is the Mauser, just because it's silly and thematic for Tony to, to use. But as far as other monster handlers, threat managers, uh, I like Yorick and Roland a lot. I'm playing a Yorick deck right now that's based around blesses and discounts and murdering things with chainsaws and knives. And it's very, very fun <laughs> and very effective. Do you like reach into your coat and be like, all right, knife time, all right, knife time. And oh, that's the chainsaw. <laughs> that's the York experience. Have you tried juggling like two knives and two chainsaws? Uh, just to, to see. How I do have goes. a bandolier level two, which allows me to have two uh, additional hand slots. And the greatest part I think about Yorick in kind of a similar vein to Mark, where he doesn't have to spend his actions uh, drawing cards. Yorick doesn't have to spend his actions playing things because he can just commit them. Like, for example, if you have a uh, survival knife out and uh, you want to get your other survival knife out, you can just commit it to a test. Once you kill an enemy, you just bring that survival knife back into play. And it's just like a way to, to circumvent having to play uh, cards via the play ability, which is great. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's very fun. Very fun. So those are, uh, so we've talked about the, you know, the two sort of primary roles in the game, but there's also, there's a whole lot of characters that are well-suited to play kind of a hybrid role that does a little bit of each of those. So let's talk a little bit about what that looks like and sort of how you should plan to make a deck and play it to be able to kind of split your 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 resources and your time between getting clues and dealing with enemies. So, you know, the, the idea is that you want to be sort of flexible so that you can switch between those two modes depending on what the group needs. And usually what happens is, you know, most of the time you want to be trying to get clues or doing other things like that. And then occasionally when there's a big boss out or when there's a huge surge of enemies all at once and it's more than your, you know, if there's like one enemy manager, you know, pure enemy manager in your group, if it's more than they can handle, then you kind of step in and help them out and maybe you take one or two of the enemies. So you want to be able to kind of switch back and forth. Now, the downside is you're a little bit less reliable and consistent because instead of all of the cards in your deck being focused on doing one thing, you probably have some cards in your deck that are meant for dealing with enemies and some cards in your deck that are meant for getting clues. And it's kind of a crapshoot, you know, which, which of those you'll have at any given point in time. So you're going to be a little bit less consistent, but you have this flexibility where, you know, you're never just like sitting around waiting for an enemy to pop up because you can always be getting clues, hopefully. And if there are a lot of enemies out, you're not just sitting there saying like, oh, well, all I can do is get clues. You can pull out a gun or something and help deal with the enemies. Yeah. And you could th kind of think of them, if, if we're using the sports ball analogy, not that I know anything about soccer other than exactly what I'm about to say, but these are kind of like your midfielders, right? They can kind of go between... That's a really, that's a really good analogy, Dan. Hey, thanks. <laughs> that, and that is the limit other than goalies of soccer. It's lost on me. I don't know what that is. Thank you, Ben. That was uh, helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> being proactive means getting clues in this game. So you want to have kind of that mindset of being proactive first and then being able to react when you can uh, with, with hybrids anyways. You're able to 
help your clue getter pro- progress the game. And then also, like Dan said, if there's a huge surge of enemies or if if your monster handler needs to heal or something like that, then you can take the heat for a minute and then go back to doing what you're doing. Yeah, it's also, um, you know, you can kind of tailor your deck and your playstyle anywhere on this continuum between sort of pure clues and pure enemies. Maybe you're kind of 50-50, like maybe if you're a mystic deck that is playing clues that help you get spells, like, uh, you know, Clairvoyance and Red of Seeking, and also clues that help you damage, like Shriveling uh, and a- is Azure Flame. I think it's Azure Flame. Yes. How do clues help you get spells and damage? <laughs> Doing cards? Uh, yeah, sorry, ca- cards or spells <laughs> or whatever. But, but uh, you know, if you're playing bo- sort of both of those in roughly even quantities, maybe you're thinking that I'm like 50-50, but maybe you're even going to play somebody like uh, Finn or Trish or somebody, and you're going to say, I'm going to mostly be getting clues, but I'm like 20%, I can evade stuff and maybe fight a couple of times. And even that can be good because maybe you're mostly getting clues and you're like a little bit less efficient at it than a seeker, but maybe you have this additional ability that you're more self-sufficient. You can go off into a corner of the map to go pick off clues off some random location and you can leave the you know main fighter in the group to protect the like pure seeker and not have to worry about you. So like there's always, uh, you can really fit anywhere in this kind of whole continuum from like zero to a hundred percent clues. So switching over a little bit to talk about how to build a deck, um, you know, obviously, you know, any card that either help that helps you do anything could potentially fit in this type of hybrid deck. But one mistake that I think people make sometimes, or maybe not a mistake, but something that I think is uh, is maybe not what we'd recommend, is trying to be good at literally everything, like trying to be good at all four skills. I think there's an argument to be made that that can be good in solo. But in multiplayer, even if you are going to be able to both do clues and enemies, you really don't want to try to be able to do like all four of your skills. You ideally want to focus on like maybe one or two. So if you're a mystic, you can really just focus on will and you can do multiple different things, but you're using your will for all of it. If you're if you're not a mystic, maybe you can play somebody like Finn where you have you only care about agility and uh, intellect mostly right and you can use those to deal with enemies and to get clues with like lockpicks and stuff you know or maybe you're you're wendy maybe you're just focusing on you know intellect and agility or something uh, maybe you're roland or joe diamond who's focusing on like intellect and combat something like that yeah exactly and i think for that reason too investigators who have high defensive stats are good for this role because they can kind of handle themselves in generally Somebody like Wendy is a really good example of one because she has very high defensive stats. Defensive stats being, of course, uh, will and agility in the way that treacheries generally come uh, at you and try to mess you up by pairing you up against a test that's like agility or will-based. Yeah, those are way more common than the other two skills. Exactly, yeah. So somebody like Wendy is really good because she can offer clue support and enemy mitigation just by virtue of her having very, very strong agility uh, and also kind of just general survivor bullshit, being able to use, like, get, get some clues here and there, being able to backstab some things. I guess that's more rogue, but yeah. I mean, having the defensive stats high generally means that, like, when you take something out of the, when you get hit by the encounter deck, you aren't as worried about it ruining your day for the next turn because you are more likely to pass the test. And you also don't need necessarily to have any cards in your deck that maybe you need to deal with uh, a particularly bad treachery because you're already like pretty good at it. So that gives you more options to fill in those deck slots with stuff that helps you get clues or deal with an enemy. 
Yeah, and, and one thing, so on the subject of deck slots, because that's definitely important to think about, if you're trying to build a deck that has both cards to get clues and cards that, that can deal with enemies, it's hard to fit them all. You kind of have to work hard to make sure that you are using your deck slots effectively. Do you guys have uh, Do you guys have sort of favorite types of hybrid decks you like to play? I mean, this is such a broad category, it's really hard to pick. I definitely like playing Mystics a lot, I like Agnes especially. Um, I also really like Wendy, although I mostly like her for like two-player games or maybe three-player a little bit. But I do, I, I like Finn a lot too. Finn is really fun because you mostly get clues, but you get to take advantage of his free action to get some value out of, uh, you know, pickpocketing and stuff. And it's also, it's fun in Forgotten Age, right? Because you can help evade all the millions of snakes that have vengeance on them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I usually lean towards uh, Mystics when I'm doing hybrid, but, you know, Survivors survivors and Rogues will slip in there too. I've been playing recently. Uh, yeah, like Dexter has been pretty fun. as uh, a recent release where he can pretty easily swap in whatever tool he needs out of his hand um as he slowly gets his board set up uh, mm-hmm. so he can handle whatever he wants i also like mystics in general because they have a, some like uh weird effect cards that they can usually squeeze into their deck to help do f- weird fun stuff like mess around with the doom or seal tokens or something so when i'm playing a hybrid deck i usually take the opportunity to do like weirder builds that still contribute to the game uh, and to progressing, but I can, you know, slip a couple weird fun cards in there. <laughs> yeah, and Dexter is a member of the five willpower club, which, uh, you know, because <laughs> if you're playing a mystic hybrid, your goal is to just use your will to do everything. Starting with a five in it is really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I like playing hybrid investigators a lot, so I can't really name any specific one, but my favorite of all time is probably Preston, just because of how unique his engine is but if i'm talking about like other more normal investigators probably somebody like joe diamond who has a four in his combat and a four in his intellect is really fun to play uh, because he has a kind of an interesting interaction with with practice cards in that he could just stuff 10 practice cards in his deck and and pull them up with a card named practice makes perfect which allows you to search your deck for a card that's practiced and commit it to a test and then if it succeeds, you get it back. So you kind of get double value for it. Or somebody like Luke, uh, who is a mystic, but also can lean into the seeker pool when he needs to for like deductions or perceptions or uh, shortcuts. Weird things happen with Luke, man. And uh, <laughs> he's a very fun <laughs> investigator to play for sure. He definitely breaks certain scenarios ridiculously wide open, while at the same time being a pretty good investigator just baseline. He like, is exceptionally good in certain scenarios. Yeah, I think as a general rule of thumb, if somebody is A, a seeker, or B, has access to seeker cards, they are a good investigator. <laughs> that is, <laughs> Yeah, that pretty much checks out, I think. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess, so, so we've talked about sort of these three primary roles that we think about as, you know, clue gathering, threat management, and sort of hybrid role. I, I want to just take a minute to, to recommend to people. I mean, you know, obviously you don't have to listen to us. The goal of the game is to have fun so you can play however you want. But one thing that I think we notice players do sometimes is just kind of focusing a lot on card interactions and sort of trying to take advantage of their investigators abilities, which can be very fun. But I think what we would encourage you to do is if you're trying to succeed as much as possible, and if you're trying to, you know, just reliably win at these scenarios, Make sure that the cards you're putting in your deck are sort of targeted to one of these two things, either getting clues or dealing with enemies. Because, you know, I think some investigators and some decks, 
you kind of get caught up in saying, well, I'm going to be able to pass a lot of tests or I'm going to be able to get a lot of money. But make sure that if you're doing those things, make sure that you have a way of translating that into actually making progress in the scenario or actually clearing threats out of the way, right? Because it's it's easy to just make like a Stella deck that fails a lot of tests and collects a lot of money and stuff. But then, you know, are you actually able to leverage that? Or you make a Calvin deck that gets really, really high stats, which is good, and then you can pass tests on everything, but you don't have access to these powerful things like Beat Cop and Vicious Blow, really, that help you do this action compression that we've been talking about. You don't have access to things like Deduction Recursion or Guiding Stones that help you improve your long-term clue efficiency. So just sort of bear that in mind. Uh, If you really want to try to maximize your, your success in this game, you want to sort of always keep in mind which of these goals you're working towards with your deck and try to do as best as you can to, to, to accomplish that. Yeah, having like a sub-theme is pretty good, depending on your group, I think. Like having a Carolyn in a Forgotten Age, for example, is kind of more of a tough call because there's not as much damage and Carolyn really cares about healing horror, whereas her in Carcosa might be a really good call because... She can succeed at getting clues pretty well, but also heal a lot of horror from people while all while kind of rolling on with, with giving her them money, clues. right? That's exactly that's almost yeah, the giving most them money, part, yeah. giving herself money. Yeah, yeah. I think with all investigators, like all of them have some type of I don't know, gimmicks the right word, but they have, they have some type of <laughs> their own little thing that's going on. And when you pick that investigator to play, you obviously want to utilize. You probably picked them because they have that cool thing. You probably didn't, maybe Dan, but everybody else probably didn't pick it because they had a five and a stat. <laughs> so, so you want to be able to utilize that thing. But if you, you could fall into a trap where you try to like build your whole deck that sp- bounces off of just that one thing, and then uh, it doesn't actually help you deal with enemies efficiently. If or... you're playing Jacqueline and you just put in all of the like weird chaos bag manipulation cards, yeah. like that might be pretty fun. And if that's what you want to do, you should absolutely do it. But that's you know, you might not be able to actually help the group win as much with that type of deck as with a Jacqueline deck that is more tailored to be able to get clues and defeat enemies. Yeah, I feel like with with those types of investigators, you know, I put like five or six cards that really synergize super well with their ability in the deck and then other cards that are more generically good for whatever class I'm playing for whichever role I'm trying to do. Yeah, you can you can balance it that way, and and some cards that synergize with your investigator's ability might be great. It's just make sure that you ask yourself, you know, ask yourself critically, like, do I really need this card? Is it actually going to do what I need what I need to do? Yeah, exactly. And kind of on the opposite spectrum of that is that you you also kind of don't want to be limited by the cards you have. Um, you want to be more supplemented by them. And and what I mean by that is including cards that make up for your weaknesses but using that as kind of your main shtick for example if you're playing stella and planning on failing that's great but if you're playing somebody like rita and planning on failing who doesn't really have built-in synergy with failing just kind of the survivor sub theme if you are planning on failing grabbing two clues with look what i found for example and you can't do that then you're kind of limited by the parameters of your cards i guess so being more careful not to pigeonhole yourself like that into situations where cards in your deck that can only do things under certain circumstances rather than kind of having more cards that can do more consistent things under more circumstances. Yeah, and, and you know, just in any card game, um, usually don't want to build your deck around having like one specific card that you only have two or however many copies of that you really need to turn your whole deck on. 
ideally you kind of have a ver- any given sort of thing that you need you have multiple cards that provide it so you're not totally uh blocked on one particular thing but yeah so so th- this is all just kind of uh you know th- this these are all just kind of rough guidelines obviously the degree to which you follow any of this stuff is totally up to you but if you're looking for ways to say like oh you know i'm playing this game with my friends you know we're having trouble in carcosa or something how can we kind of up our game a little bit maybe some of these ideas would help or if you if you're used to playing solo and you're saying oh i'm going to try playing a four player game with some friends and i just want to know some tips going into it this might help a little bit we should also mention just very briefly when you're building a group you know if you're building like a three or four player group i, I mean i think like on average you want sort of like half the group to be enemy managing and half of it to be clues usually or you know you can skew it either way depending on what what you want to do like if you want to just go really fast and you have a really good fighter in your group maybe you can lean a little bit more in the clues direction you know, so maybe if you have like a three-player group, maybe you have like a fighter, a clue person, and a hybrid. If you have a four-player group, maybe you have something like two of each, or maybe you have a fighter, a clue person, a kind of like hybrid that's a little bit more in the direction of clues, and like a hybrid that's a little bit more in the direction of fighting. There's a there's a ton of different combinations. Yeah, exactly. And at this point, there's there's a, enough of a card pool, provided you have, I guess, a whole collection uh, or or the majority of a collection to to be able to perform multiple roles as a single investigator for example if you're playing a joe diamond deck you could you could either have him as a hybrid or you could have him as a clue gatherer or even you could have him as a fighter just because he lends himself to to so many different things etc so the card pool is just so expansive and like this is not a cautionary tale to not play investigators who aren't seekers or guardians i think that any investigator can succeed but the investigators who have fives in a stat are typically the ones who if you are at doubt go for and i say typically because rita is one of those (laughs) that doesn't make the cut at the very least i mean if it's uh you know a nice like a nice way to say this maybe it's it's harder to screw those up like you don't right you know you have a pretty linear path to success if you're playing like a guardian with five combat or a seeker with five intellect yeah um and of course there are we've we've described a bunch of other types of decks you can play too that are also very good but it, yeah, the the thing I'd really encourage people to do is just uh, instead of I, I'm sure people already kind of know this, but if you're going to play in a group with three or four people or even two, rather than just kind of showing up and just, oh, I'm playing this, I'm playing this, you know, talk about it and kind of plan out a little bit um, and see if you can find ways to specialize and, you know, pick different roles so that you your decks complement each other. And that's part of what's fun about playing the game in a larger group is finding those kinds of synergies and sort of finding ways that each person can contribute different things to uh what the what the group needs we we touched on a little bit maybe this is a whole other topic but like when you're building a group you also want to consider like how your investigators and decks can interact with each other potentially to do efficient powerful effects like like even just like if you know you're gonna have carol in the group that means you're probably gonna get a little bit more money income just from because she's there so maybe you can consider slightly more expensive cards in your deck that you couldn't wouldn't otherwise be able to afford stuff like that yeah, or knowing, uh, you know, well, one person in the group has very low sanity, but uh, there's someone in the group that's going to play some liquid courage or something like that, or some, uh, you know, logical reasoning that can heal horror to kind of compensate for it. Yeah. Yeah, so I think kind of in summary, just thinking of these things as kind of, I mean, again, not to make it like a complete sports ball reference, but like your offense being your clue gatherers, your defense being your threat management and your midfielders being your your hybrids is kind of a good way to think about it. So if you haven't played in a three or four person group, are you interested in trying? 
Any tips that you have to share with other Arkham players or us? Let us know your thoughts. Let us know tips if you've got any. Come and hang out with us on our Discord. Reach out to us on Facebook, Reddit, or Instagram. Or email us at comments at MUR.FM. If you really love our show and you want to get more involved, join us on Patreon.com slash University Radio to get access to exclusive Discord channels and other fun stuff. Or just leave us a nice review on your favorite podcasting network. Thanks everyone for listening. Be safe, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Ben, what was the last Pokemon you caught in Pokemon Go? <laughs> uh, binic- uh, binacle, which is a fuck binary is barnacle. Binacle? What the fuck? <laughs> it, has, it has two hand things sticking out of like a barnacle, the hands have eyes on them. It's a really weird Pokemon. <laughs> we, this needs to be a segment in every episode now. Every day we drift further from God. <laughs>